Welcome to the sermon podcast of Paley Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Becca Bruner. Hey there and welcome. Thanks again for joining us. We're continuing our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed today, and as we do, we're going to read a scripture passage that's one we typically hear around Christmas, uh, but we're going to read it today. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Again, we're reading together this season from the message version of the Bible, and I invite you to join me. Luke, chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph, and the virgin's name, Mary. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty. Beautiful inside and out. God be with you. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will rule Jacob's house forever, no end ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, but how? I've never slept with a man. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest hover over you. Therefore, the child you bring to birth will be called Holy Son of God. And did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son old as she is? Everyone called her barren, and here she is six months pregnant. Nothing, you see, is impossible with God. And Mary said, Yes. I see it all now. I'm the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Let it be with me just as you say. Then the angel left her. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. And we thank you that by the gift of your living word, Jesus Christ, these words of scripture and this word to be proclaimed can come fresh to our ears, can take root in our heart, and can change our lives. So we pray that that would be so, Lord, that that the words that I speak today would be your words, that the words that that anyone who hears spoken today would be your words, the words you want to speak, the words you know we need to hear. And we pray all of this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Well, several years ago, uh, a man named Robert Bella wrote a book entitled Habits of the Heart. Subtitle was Individualism and Commitment in American Life. It's widely thought to be one of the the best studies and and, and interpretations of American culture that's been written in many, many years. And in this book, Bella tells one particular story that kind of stood out to me for our purposes. He tells the story of of an interview he gave to a woman named Sheila. And in this interview with Sheila, he he recounts uh, some ways she was talking about her own faith. And, And here's what she said. She said, I believe in God, 
not a religious fanatic or anything. Can't remember the last time I went to church. But my faith has carried me a long, long way. Later in the interview, she actually tells Bella that she kind of has, has a name for her particular faith. She calls it Sheilaism. Right? Sheilaism. To Sheila, her faith is, is that voice that she feels kind of guides her, that voice inside her own head. Well, surveys show that about 80% of all Americans believe in God. But then when pressed for greater detail about who this God is that they believe in, you find a lot of them, what they believe in is kind of more like Sheilaism. Could call it Beccaism, or Tomism, or Sharonism. That is, what many of us believe in is a God that we've kind of put together for ourselves. A God who says and does what we happen to like. So perhaps a, a better, more universal term for the faith that a lot of us here in America espouse is just me-ism. It's me-ism. You know, this isn't a new thing. It's been this way for a long time. It's not a modern American trend, though it happens to be pretty prevalent. All the way back in the fourth century, St. Augustine wrote, he said, if you only believe in the gospel what you like and reject what you don't like, well, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. That's me-ism in a nutshell. And it's so, so, so important for those of us who call ourselves Christians to understand that, that our faith is based on so much more than, than just our own opinions, our own viewpoints. Me-ism doesn't work here, which is why we're spending these many weeks studying and learning and, and taking into our heads and our hearts these words of the Apostles' Creed. As we said it before, the, the Creed does a number of really important things. The, the Creed gives us clarity. Right? We've said that before, that, that, that through the creed we come to more fully understand the, the real content of the Christian faith. Creed also gives us symmetry, gives us balance, kind of putting together everything in its proper place about what we think about who God is and, and, and who we are and how all that works together. And the creed gives us community. It unites us through time and space to all other Christians in all other places, in all other times, in Christian history. Creed's really helpful. It's really helpful, and it's really, really important. So last week, as we continued in the Creed, Jonathan got us started on this second paragraph, this very long section of the Creed that deals directly with Jesus. That paragraph that begins, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Jesus is the very center of the Christian faith. And this paragraph, it talks all about him. And so starting today, we're going to look at what it tells us about him. It tells us about really some of the most important events of Jesus' life through those historical moments from Christmas to Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter, and Ascension Day. And the very first thing the Creed has to say about Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, well, it says that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. And I know, 
I know that right off the bat here, just as we start talking about Jesus, this is kind of the point where people start having trouble with the creed, right? Like this is the point where when we're reciting it in church, some people kind of cross their fingers and put them behind their backs and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, some of you, you're not so sure, right? Like you believe in Jesus, but the idea of the virgin birth, that makes you a little uneasy. There's some reasons for that, some, some legitimate reasons for that, that dis-ease, that discomfort with the idea of the virgin birth. For some of us, we struggle with the idea that Jesus could have been conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, because, well, in order for that to happen, I mean, that would be a miracle. And if we're honest, some of us may not believe in miracles. You know, living in a culture that, that rightly and, and in, in many good ways values science and, and the scientific methods so much, we've been trained to be what you might call naturalists. Yeah, you know, a naturalist believes in, in the observable world, in this closed system in which we live, a closed system in which there are certain observable, infallible laws, one of which, as it relates to this concept, one of which clearly states that in order to create a human baby, we know. We know this. We know you need a female ovum and a male sperm, and, and those have to go together to make a baby. And so to suggest that Jesus may have been created another way, well, that's just unthinkable if you're a naturalist. Thomas Jefferson, the founding father and third president of the United States, he was a naturalist. He did not, he could not believe in miracles. He liked Jesus. Thought he was a good man, a great leader, a great teacher, but he just kind of believed, you know, all those miracle stories in the Gospels, that those just can't be true. You know, perhaps those were added in later by some of those really religious fanatics who just really wanted to pump up Jesus' reputation, right? He said, those can't be true. So, so really, actually, what, what Thomas Jefferson did is he decided to write what he thought was a more accurate depiction of Jesus' life. He rewrote all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with all the accounts of everything that, that was at all kind of miraculous. He just took it all out. So, so the virgin birth, the healings, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, the resurrection. In Jefferson's gospel, it's, it's all gone. What it came out to is a pretty short book. You know, some of us, we, we, we struggle with the virgin birth because we're coming at it from a naturalist point of view. And so in order to even begin to wrap our minds around the possibility that this might be true to possibly believe it, we need to open our minds to the possibility even of miracles. We need to be open to the idea that, that God might be able to, to break in and do something unheard of, something supernatural. Now, supernatural, it means above the laws of nature. The supernaturalist believes that the universe does have some clearly defined laws of operations, but that those laws were created by someone outside the creation. And this someone 
if indeed this someone has the power to create the whole system, this someone also has the power to step into that system. And yes, sometimes work within the laws, but sometimes work outside them as well. Yes, in a completely naturalistic world, the virgin birth is impossible. So we need to remember the angel Gabriel's words that nothing is impossible with God. We need to be at least open to the possibility of miracles. Now, another reason some of us might struggle to believe in the virgin birth of Christ is sadly because some of the ways that this particular doctrine has been used and even abused by some of us in the Christian church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has created its own share of difficulties when it comes to the virgin birth. Many of us know these issues quite well, but doesn't seem right in a Presbyterian church to pick on the Catholics. We need to pick on ourselves a little bit because there's plenty of, uh, of mess to share. In the earliest part of the 20th century, there were some Protestant Christians, Protestant Christians, Presbyterians, some of them, who created a kind of litmus test for true Christian orthodoxy, true Christian belief. This group, they became known as the fundamentalists, to be fair, were reacting against a, a, very, a very radical liberal group that had thrown out a lot of good Christian doctrine. And so they were trying to kind of pull back from that. But in order to correct those kind of quote-unquote liberal mistakes, the fundamentalists swung way hard the other way and got really black and white, drew really hard and fast boundary lines to, to decide and determine who was in and who was out. They made all these doctrinal statements and they used them to kind of test whether a person was really a true Christian or not. And the virgin birth was really, really high on that list. If you believed in the miraculous birth of Christ, without question, you were in. But if you didn't, your faith was kind of suspect and, and you might possibly be kicked out. And, and, and I'll tell you, the fighting got so fierce over this. People got so mad about this that churches, churches, even seminaries, even my own alma mater, Princeton Seminary, split over this. There was so much bitterness, so much division, so much just yuck in this fight. It caused a whole lot of people in the years that followed. Just let's just avoid the topic altogether. And looking back, what the fundamentalists failed to recognize and what we need to remember is that the Christian faith requires a very high capacity for mystery. For mystery. It, it, that's why in the creed we use the words, I believe in God. Not, I know for certain that God exists. Not, I am 100% sure of Jesus Christ. No, I believe. I trust. Even, and, and, and perhaps especially, when I don't fully know what I'm not sure. If we are going to believe in the virgin birth, and, and frankly, in Jesus at all, we need to hold room for mystery. Because in the end, Scripture doesn't tell us everything we need to know. The angel Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to bear God's Son, 
And, and so she logically asks, yeah, um, but how? I've never slept with a man. And I don't know if you noticed, Gabriel doesn't really fully answer her question because as we've said before, the Bible all throughout, it's really not particularly interested in answering those how questions. Gabriel doesn't tell Mary anything about fertilization or, or fallopian tubes. <laughs> he simply tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will hover over you. Therefore, the child you bring to birth will be called the Holy Son of God. How does all that work? The Bible leaves us in a place of mystery. It's just not trying to answer that question. The question the Bible is quite interested in answering, however, are the who questions and the why questions. So let's turn our attention to those for a minute. First, the who. When we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary, we are saying that we believe that, that, that God, God who, who remember just from a couple weeks ago, God who is infinitely powerful, intensely relational, God who created and sustains the entire universe, God in Jesus Christ came to us, came to be with us, came to be one of us. That's what the prophet Isaiah foretold over 400 years prior to Jesus' birth. He said, watch for it. A girl who is presently a virgin will get pregnant. She will bear a son and name him Emmanuel, God with us. In the person of Jesus Christ, God came to us. And there are two realities here that are really, really important to hold on to. The person of Jesus Christ and the, the Godness of Jesus Christ. The technical way of saying that is the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Both are absolutely essential. Jesus was both fully God and fully human, both at the same time. Jonathan spoke last week about the importance of the divinity of Jesus. Some people struggle with that. They struggle to believe that Jesus was fully God. They'd rather think of him as a, a gifted rabbi, a brilliant teacher, a moral example, best human ever. But fully God? Mm, that's stretching it. Others have thought of Jesus on the other side of the spectrum. He's kind of a, an angelic being, a, a pure divine spirit, unfettered by human flesh, untainted by temptation, immune to suffering and death. To them, Jesus was indeed fully God, but maybe just kind of disguised as a human. And against these very real but very wrong ideas, the Apostles' Creed affirms the radical truth that Jesus was nothing less than God in the flesh, God incarnate, God with us. 
See, conceived by the Holy Ghost, that means that Jesus comes from God, and so there he, therefore he is no less than fully God. And born of the Virgin Mary? Well, that means that Jesus is fully human. He was born of a human mother, just like us. He was experienced the range of life's joys and sorrows, just like us. He was tempted and tested, just as we are. And later, he would suffer and die, as one day we all will. Jesus was fully human, just like us. So that's the who. The creed affirms that Jesus was fully God and fully human. God with us. So then what about the why? Why? It's really when it comes down to it, what matters more than affirming that the virgin birth may have happened is understanding why it happened, why it matters. And it's interesting, just this last week in my studying for this sermon, I, I learned that actually Christians are not the only ones who believe in the virgin birth. The Quran actually speaks of it as well. Many Muslims affirm that Jesus was born of a virgin. But what that means about who Jesus is and what he came to do, that's where Christians and Muslims differ. You see, in Islam, Jesus is understood to be simply a prophet, a human, a great human, but not God. In Islam, Allah is the God above us, the God up there. And the God up there sometimes sends others down here. God sends prophets, God sends angels, but God, God stays up there. Islam and, and Christianity, we both agree that, that there's a problem. There's a chasm, a holiness gap between God and us. We agree that there's a problem where we differ is on the solution. And the story of Jesus' birth is Christianity's solution to the problem of that gap. The Bible tells us that God is the one who crosses it, who closes it. In Jesus Christ, God comes to us. Think about it this way. I know some of you are with me on this. A few years ago, I was addicted to a certain TV show that got great huge ratings, huge popularity for a network none other than PBS, right? Like, they didn't know what to do with themselves. Like, Rick Steves and everybody were looking over being like, who are all these people? They've never been on PBS before, right? Because the show that they put on for a good few seasons was Downton Abbey. And we all watched it. Most of us watched it. You probably watched it even if you don't admit it. We watched it. We all got sucked in to the drama of Downton Abbey, right? And I loved it. I, I, I will say, I think it got a little too soap opera-y at the end there, but I loved that first season. Because what I really, really loved is you, you met all these characters and you got pulled into this culture that was so different from ours. You met the people who, who lived upstairs, right? These were the rich people, the, the aristocrats, the masters. And then you met the people who lived downstairs. Yeah, they were the servants, the, the poorer class. And, and by and large, in Downton Abbey, in this culture, the two did not mix, not in friendship anyhow. You know, they were nice. They were polite to one another, but they were not on the same level, literally or figuratively. They weren't friends. 
This was real life. This is how things worked in Great Britain for a great number of years. And I came across a story this week written by a pastor and a writer named Luce Meads. He says he actually experienced this life himself a little bit. He was a young man, a grad student. He spent a year studying at Oxford in England. And when he did so, he and his wife, they, they went and they stayed at the home of a woman named Mrs. Harris. Now, Mrs. Harris and her husband, they had been servants of an Oxford gentleman for over 50 years. And in that world, apparently, anybody who studied at Oxford was a gentleman. And gentlemen, they lived upstairs, and people like Mrs. Harris, they lived downstairs. So Lou Smeads, he, he moves in, he takes up a room at Mrs. Harris's house, and he wanted to be her friend. You know, he'd try to do things for her. He would sh try to shovel the coal for her furnace. He would clean her fireplace. He'd try to put on the tea, and Mrs. Harris wouldn't hear of it. She wouldn't let him do it. They were not going to be friends. And Louis, he, he tried to offer friendship, and, and, and while she was flattered, she wasn't interested. She was the servant, and he was the gentleman. No matter how hard he tried to explain, like, no, 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 that's not how it works in my world. I'm, I'm an American. I'm not a gentleman. She wouldn't have it. He belonged upstairs, and she belonged downstairs. There was a gap. There was a chasm between the upstairs people and the downstairs people, and ain't nothing was going to change Mrs. Harris's mind about that. So here's how this plays into what we're talking about today. If Louis Meads was the upstairs person and Mrs. Harris was the downstairs person, where's God in this picture? Like, where's God and where am I? Like, Louis Meads here, Mrs. Harris here. God's like on the millionth floor, the top, top floor of the penthouse, and I'm in the basement. Like, there is majesty and holiness and this infinite distance between God and humanity. He is way, way up there in his perfection and his beauty and his glory and his limitless power. And I'm way, way down here in my finitude and my fallenness and my brokenness and my mess. And I could spend the rest of my life trying to, to climb my way up to God by doing good deeds. But let's be honest, I never could make it because I mess up even when I'm just trying to do good deeds. That's just the human condition. God is way, way up on the one millionth floor of holiness and perfection, and I am way down here in the basement of junk and sin and fear. Until one day, until one day, until one day, an angel of the Lord appeared to a lowly nobody downstairs person named Mary. And he told her, I've got some really good news. I've got the best news. God's coming down the stairs. And Jesus, God is coming all the way down here, down into the basement, down as far as he needs to go to be with you. And the really good news is, as Lou Smeads put it, he said, God didn't just come for a visit. He brought his toothbrush, he brought his razor, he brought his pajamas. He came to stay. He came to stay.
Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, is God taking on our humanity, coming all the way downstairs. And in Jesus, God is saying to you, I'd like to be your friend. I'd just like to be your friend. There's an infinite chasm between God and us, and God himself bridged it. And that changes everything. That changes everything. Now, because of Jesus, we can be friends with God. We can be friends with one another. We can all live downstairs together because Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I call you friends. You know, we all think we need to do more. We need to serve more. We need to, to give more, to do better. And God says, you know what? I am bringing up there, down here. I have come downstairs. So now we can be friends. So I wonder, have you experienced that? Have you ever said yes to God's offer of friendship in Jesus? If you haven't, now could be a really good time. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. And particularly if you've never done this, make this your prayer today. God, I want to be your friend. I recognize that there is a distance, a chasm between you and me, and I would love for that to change. I would love for that gap to be filled. I understand I can't be good enough to do that. But I know that in Jesus, you're making the move toward me. I acknowledge the chasm. I, I recognize my own sin. But I want to live from this day forward as your friend. So make it so, Lord. Come, come into my heart, come into my life. Lord Jesus Christ. Come be my friend. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 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 Amen.